Hello, my name is Lisa. I'm from the 4PM service, <laughs> if you haven't met any yet. Um, so today's passage is Micah chapter 7, verse 8 to 20, um, and it reads, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light, and I will see his righteousness. Then my enemies will see it and will be covered with shame. She has said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall, even though, even now she'll be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls will come, the day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance will live by itself in a the flock of your inheritance which lives by itself in a forest, in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. As in days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouth and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and, you will, and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? Do not stay angry forever. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us you will tread our sins underfoot. You will hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Here is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, everybody. It's like the class after lunch at school, right? Where... Uh, brothers and sisters, it is a great joy to open up uh, God's Word with you. I'm going to start with a, just a bit of a quiz. It's the year 2000. I know half of you weren't born then, but the other half you still were. Uh, the Baha Men released arguably the greatest song ever written. Arguably. And the song is? Who Let the Dogs Out? That's correct. Maddie, obviously, you sound like you know what, Maddie. Do you know it? Yeah, there we go. Great song, right? I'm not, not going to do a rendition, although it sounds like Warwick will very happily give a rendition over dinner. Uh, it was what musicians uh, and we call culturally a one-hit wonder. That is, from those great heights of Who Let the Dogs Out, that the Baha men have never been seen nor heard. Some of you might think that's a good thing, but it's just a thing. In fact, there are hundreds of songs which were, were big and huge and then never heard of again. And uh, the, prophecy, uh, the prophet Micah has a one-hit wonder. That is, there's one verse that almost everyone knows from Micah. And if you went to a school, maybe it may have even been the school motto, Maddie, isn't that right? Is anyone here willing to, I haven't got a prize, but if I was to give you a prize, uh, have a go at what that verse is. What's the famous verse? This is non-rhetorical, sorry, I didn't make that clear. 6-8, very good. Claire, which is? Which is 6-8. Which is 6-8, yes. Not just the number, the content of the verse. Being humble, that's a good one, yeah, being humble, but you can be a little bit proud and tell us you know it. 
Bonus points, there we go. Ten points for Gryffindor or whatever house you're in. That is that there is this one amazing, and it is, brothers and sisters, an amazing verse in Micah that, that almost that has kind of taken a life of its own. And what's really powerful about that verse, it doesn't just sum up what we are to do as God's people. What we see as we look through the book of Micah is it actually sums up who God is. And that we are, his people are to reflect that character. And what we see too is that as we travel through the book, we've seen it as we get to the last one, uh, the last in our series this week, there has been this journey of hope through judgment. Hope through judgment. And particularly these last verses, the kind of the last verses of chapter 7, we really see this idea of hope come to the fore. And so my hope is that as we look at these verses, perhaps there'll be new verses that we can add to 6, 8, so that uh, Micah doesn't just have a one-hit wonder, it's got a, a few other hits, which I'd argue there's some very good quality verses for us to look at. So when we, when we have a look at it together, so open up your, your scriptures to Micah 7. It's also in a handout if you have the handout in front of you. And what I want to draw out is four, four reasons Micah gives us to have hope. Four reasons why Micah gives us hope. Uh, the first one is verses 8 to 10. Uh, and in verses 8 to 10 we see, the Lord is the light in the darkness. The Lord is the light in the darkness. And, and as we read those, those three verses, have a look and you'll see uh, a tension at play. Two things that, that, are, that are really obvious. And the first is Micah displays bold brokenness. He, he's really open about his own sinfulness. And secondly, Micah, at the same time, has bold confidence in God's mercy and God's grace. Bold boldness, and sorry, bold brokenness and bold confidence. Now just before we look at those verses, uh, in our culture, the idea of darkness often represents uh, an internal reality. Uh, it can be referred to someone being ignorant or perhaps in a state of depression or, or broken. Uh, in the Bible, though, when, when we see the word darkness used, uh, it is actually referring to an external reality that is God's judgment. With God's judgment comes this idea of darkness. And that's really evident, of course, when Christ is crucified. What happens? The whole land goes dark in the middle of the day. It's a sign of judgment. And we need to understand that so we understand verses 8 and 9 properly. See, verse 8 says this, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. What, what Micah is saying, he's not just in darkness because it's a, an eclipse or he's feeling down. No, he's saying, actually, I'm sitting under the judgment of God. And that's really clear when you get to verse 9. Why is he sitting in darkness? Well, because I've sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. That's why Micah is sitting in judgment. He, he, there is a bold brokenness there. He, he's open about his sinfulness. And, and as followers of Christ, we are called to do the same thing. We have confession as part of our regular service, as a corporate confession. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, forgive us our sins. In other words, we're not to minimise or, or downplay our sins. We don't downplay how, how terribly offensive it is to God, 
We don't say, look, God can't get angry with us. I'm a nice guy. Instead, we tremble in the darkness at God's displeasure. That is what it means to be boldly broken, to be open, to be remorseful, to be sorry. But notice how this bold brokenness is at the same time paired with this bold confidence. Micah never loses sight of God's grace. In the same verse, he boldly believes this God who brings the the darkness of judgment is the same God who brings the light of restoration and forgiveness and righteousness. Those two important things always come together as followers of the Lord Jesus. Bold brokenness of our sin, bold confidence in the grace of God. And what this helps us do is, uh, is, as Bonhoeffer put it, remind us that grace is not cheap. Grace is free, but not cheap. Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism, without church discipline. Communion, which we're celebrating today, without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Bold, bold openness about our sin. Bold brokenness. But also bold confidence. We need both. Your prayer life should be focused on both. Here is the hope we have. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. What an extraordinary hope. Well, secondly, one of the great hopes we have in Micah is verses 11 to 14 where we see the Lord is a shepherd to his people. Now, in this picture of hope, Micah describes the people as a flock of sheep, which you might think is a little bit rude, but no, it's a common metaphor for God's people. Uh, returning to God, who is their shepherd. Have a look at verse 14 in particular, uh, where, where Micah cries out, shepherd your flock with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. Now, they're not just random sheep that you just found. One, they're sheep that belong to this shepherd, uh, which live by itself in a forest in fertile pastures. Let them feed in Basham and Gilead as in days long ago. There's this great promise that that this shepherd will come and lead his sheep to green pastures, which sounds familiar, doesn't it? Notice that this is all occurring on a day. He talks about it, the day for your, your building of your walls, the day for you extending your boundaries, that day the people will come to you. It's a prophecy about some future day, often referred to as the day of the Lord, where God will set everything right, a promised day where this king, this shepherd king will come. Notice too, this will be an international event. Uh, forget the World Cup, this is, this is next level international. Uh, people come from many nations to become the people of God in this new Jerusalem. And what's really interesting is, have a look in verse 12 about who the nations are that are mentioned. Uh, in that day, the people will come to you from Assyria, which is where the northern kingdom have gone into uh, exile, and the cities of Egypt even from Egypt to the Euphrates, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Egypt, by the way, is not good buddies with Israel. They're one of Israel's enemies. 
But yet all of them will still come and be part of God's new Jerusalem, new people. It's an international event. And what we see here is like the reverse of the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, as people are cursed, they're spread out. But here we see the nations come together on that day as one. Hints, just very subtle hints of Pentecost there. Notice too that in this promise of hope, Jerusalem gets to be bigger and better. This is the town planning part of scriptures, or one of them. Uh, Jerusalem, by the way, is a city that's defined by its walls. And if you've ever been to the old city, you'll notice that you can't miss it. It's on a hill and there are walls all the way around. In other words, that's the size. It's a bit like how Melbourne, the size of Melbourne, is defined about where the trams go, right? That's how far Melbourne is. Do you live inside the hipster-proof fence where you have a tram? But this is going to be a bigger and better and more fertile, more fruitful, more beautiful Jerusalem. The walls will be extended. The boundaries will grow. Notice too that the people there will live by itself in a forest, in a fertile pasture land. Uh, let them feed in Basham and Gilead as in days of old. Now, Basham and Gilead were kind of like the, the beauty spots where you would have to book your Airbnb months in advance to get the lovely view of the valley. In fact, there were two things that Basham and Gilead were renowned for. Uh, This is great. Splendid trees and fat cows. So if you like a good steak under a tree, Basham and Gilead are your place. You know, 10 out of 10 for trees, 10 out of 10 for fat cows. It was a place you went because it was a place of opulence and blessing. In other words, it's a bit like the Yarra Valley and Wilson's Prom and Ligon Street, a land flying with gelato and latte, a land of abundant blessing. If you've been to Jerusalem, it's dry and it's arid. But this new Jerusalem will be fertile and beautiful. And fourthly, it's really obvious that there will be a future shepherd king who will rule God's people. He'll come with a staff, it says in verse 14. Here is the promise of a Messiah, a chosen king to come and restore his people. And this staff, uh, it represents leadership and guidance, like as a shepherd would use it to lead and guide the sheep. But also there's something really interesting about this staff. It goes back to a promise that was made in Genesis 49 where God promises that a scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to, who, sorry, until he comes to whom it belongs shall be the obedience of the nation, sorry, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Back in, in, in Genesis, God promises that God's ruler will always be there until the nations come. It's a remarkable prophecy which in part is is kind of fulfilled when David comes along, the kind of the shepherd king 1.0, but of course much more completely and fully realised when Christ returns, uh, Christ comes, sorry, and then returns, the good shepherd. Well, thirdly, we also see a reason for hope is that God, sorry, the Lord is God over the nations. This is verses 15 to 17. And in verses 15, notice how Micah points both forwards and backwards. He's going going back to the future. This is where the original idea came from for the movie. Uh, 
That's a joke, by the way. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Uh, as in the days when we came out, of, uh, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. As in those days, that's the past. I will show you. There's the future. Now, those days when you came out of Egypt is, of course, the great rescue story of the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus with Moses and the plagues and going through the, the Red Sea and it's, there's a musical and uh, there's you know, movies. It's, it's a big, big historical story. But it's, it's actually not just a story that God's people would remember. It was kind of embedded in their culture. The Exodus is part of the liturgical worship. It's part of the Passover story. It was passed down from one generation to the next. It was a constant source of encouragement for God's people in times of darkness and despair as well as a challenge to repent in times of disobedience. And so Micah is saying to these these people, look, just like in the Exodus, your current sin and coming judgment won't stop you from being God's people and won't stop you from seeing God's wonders. In fact, there's going to be an even bigger exodus, a grander rescue plan. There is hope through judgment. It will be such a profound rescue, in fact, the whole world will be shocked and, and stunned into silence. Look what it says in verse 14. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. The nations here are a symbol of human pride without God. Human arrogance at its most determined. Human leadership attempting to rule without reference, let alone worship of the one true and living God. And the result is, well, they will come trembling out of their dens and they will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Now, how is that a message of hope? Well, it's a message of hope because when I look at the world so often, I am utterly disheartened. Watching the international news is generally not a positive thing. Even at home, yes, there are good stories, but there are also stories of brokenness and of sadness and of evil seemingly winning. And it seems like there's no hope from a human perspective. And the reality is there is no hope from a human perspective. But there is hope when God is in the picture. Because the Lord is God over all the nations. He will actually bring redemption and justice and peace and reconciliation. All those problems that are just so complicated and generational and heartbreaking and evil. God will come and bring peace. And that gives me great hope. Well, fourthly, Micah reminds us that one of the most astounding reasons that we can have hope is that the Lord is the one and only Saviour. This is verses 18 to 20. And it kind of makes sense, right? If the Lord is the light in the darkness and if 
the Lord is shepherd of his people and if the Lord is God over the nations, it's not surprising to hear Micah proclaim in verse 18, who is a, who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Who is a God like you? It's the old pun. Uh, You and I have one. The Queen, or in this case now the King, seldom has one. And God never has one. Do you know what the answer is? I asked a kid this. I said a bath. (laughs) maybe the king probably has one occasionally Uh, it's a peer it's a peer there is no one like God and at the heart of his character we see this this divine mercy the Hebrew word this hesed love unchanging, always faithful overwhelming eternal love and mercy that sits at the heart of God and is in turn to sit at the heart of God's people. See, that famous verse, verse 6-8, why are we to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God? Now the simple answer is, they're good things, right? And that's true. But at a deeper level, they're good things because they are who God is in his character. God is the God who does justice and is love and his mercy and therefore as his followers we are called to reflect his character that's what 6 is telling us reflect the character of the one you worship and it's really common because you become like that you worship what you worship you will become like whatever your role model is you'll become like them if we are to seek to worship God to see his character then we'll be shaped by his spirit, be more like him. You become what you worship. And what's the result of this mercy and love? Well, in verse 19, you will again have compassion on us, says Micah. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Now, the challenge deep is the world's deepest known point of our world's oceans. It is 11 kilometres under the, under the water when you hit the bottom. That's a fairly long way down. Uh, and in 1960, uh, in, in January, the deep sea submarine Trieste, carrying the very famous French, Frenchman Jacques Bugard, uh, and a very boring American name of Don Walsh, uh, reached the bottom. And it was the first time any human being had ever got to the, the deepest part of our ocean, the Challenge Deep. Uh, Since then, only a handful of people have been there. In fact, more people have walked on the moon than have been to the deepest part of our ocean. Uh, Elon Musk and NASA aren't planning to go down to the bottom uh, of this deepest uh, part of the world. They're much happier to go to the moon. It's easier. That is how hard it is to get to. Forget the moon. See what God is saying here? That is how out of reach, how distant your sin is now from you. You have a better chance of putting a a mask on and and some flippers, paddling up and paddling down for 11 kilometres. That's a better chance than your sin being around still. God has removed your sin. 
Uh, doing some research for this passage, I found out, I'm not sure I've got this right, there is uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, uh, and Orthodox Jews will go to a stream or river and they will symbolically empty their pockets into the water and recite Micah 7, 18 to 20. Uh, it's called a Tashlich service, which literally means you shall cast. In other words, taking the first sentence of these verses. You shall cast your sins. Why? Because God removes them. God is the only one who can deal with our sin problem. And Micah makes this point really obvious. He keeps saying, uh, you will again, you will again uh, uh, have compassion. You will tread our sins underfoot. You will be faithful. Not help me do it. No, God, only you, you are the one who can deal with sin. And unlike uh, the Orthodox Jew, we actually know how God does this actual amazing event. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the reality is this, brothers and sisters, you and I deserve to sit in darkness. We deserve to face God's righteous judgment for our sin. But in Jesus, God has trodden, uh, treated us with compassion. He's trodden our sins underfoot. God has been faithful. And as we come to the time of Advent and Christmas, we are reminded that this is the same God who sent his Son in, in the flesh to become one of us. And he took our lives in the darkness. And he took us into the cross. And he left it there. And this is really important. God does not just overlook sin. God has condemned sin. It is removed. God doesn't belong to the she'll be right mate school of sin. He's not an Australian, right? He's, he's far more important than that. He's far too holy and far too righteous. Sin must be dealt with. Sin does not escape condemnation. You are not just let off with God saying, don't be naughty again. Your sin is completely judged in the Lord Jesus Christ. No condemnation, no darkness. Your sin's at the bottom of the sea. This is really important because often we think our sins have been stashed around the corner. They're just out of sight, right? You know that they're not, they're not on you, but you know that if you go around the corner, it'll, they'll jump on you again and then, then it's all gone. No. There is no sin for which Christ has not died. It is not waiting around the corner. God is not holding it above you. You have been set free from each and every sin, even the ones you're deeply ashamed of. They're not hiding around the corner. They're at the bottom of an 11-kilometre ocean. which means you have hope. And you can join with the great hymn writer, Charles Wesley, and sing triumphantly. We started with a song, right? This is probably a better song. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. 
alive in him, the living head, clothed in righteousness divine. And then he says this, bold I approach the eternal throne. Bold. You're boldly approaching God's throne. Not shyly or or meekly or uncertainly. Boldly. And claim, not meekly ask, the crown through Christ my own. That is the basis of our hope. Christ's work from beginning to end. Truly, the Lord is the one and only Saviour. Let me pray, giving God thanks for his amazing hope in the Lord Jesus before we stand and sing and rejoice in this great hope. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this book of Micah. Well, we have seen particularly this afternoon four great reasons for having our hope in you. That you are indeed the light in the darkness. That you are indeed the shepherd of your people. That you are indeed the God over the nations. And you are indeed our one and only Saviour. Who is like you, O God? who pardons sin and forgives transgressions. Amen.